The Athletic. Hello there, thank you for joining us. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast with me, Ali Maxwell, and my two co-hosts, Tom Warville and Michael Cox, analytics and tactics writers, respectively, for The Athletic. And if last week's episode was a mixed grill, as I described it in the introduction, then this is more surf and turf this week. Two major topics with no relation to each other whatsoever, arguably shouldn't even be on the same plate slash podcast, but we wanted to get our teeth into both. First, we have IFAB in the crosshairs. Michael, in particular, has some constructive criticism around some of the laws of the game. And then Newcastle United, not exactly a niche topic this week. We're well aware of that, but we want to look at what could happen next on the footballing side of things and draw particularly on the expertise uh, of Tom Warville, uh, re-squad building, and of Michael as well, uh, re-tactics and tactical changes when one wants to become a super team. Uh, Hopefully do so in a way that's less fantasy football, which we've seen quite a lot of, and more reality football. Less sexy as that may be. I was going to say, hey, Michael, but Michael's having a large sip of water before he talks about the laws of the game. Hi, Tom Warver. How are you? Hello, Ali. Yes, very good. Thank you. I see you've had a nice, nice uh, week off. You're full of energy this morning. That's right. Jealous of both of you taking individual trips to Spain in the last month. I took on the uh, Portuguese autonomous region of Madeira, which is a large rock essentially in the middle of the ocean quite near to Africa Uh, and I would absolutely recommend it particularly for some warm weather October fair Uh, really enjoyable stuff but while I was away Tom you were at the Statsbomb conference at Stamford Bridge last Friday some people call the Statsbomb football analytics conference the Eurovision of football analytics Uh, which talks stood out most for you on the day? What what could you tell us about in just a few minutes or less and make us both understand and be excited about? Yes, yeah, so there were three kind of talks that really stuck out for me. Um, the first was the, I guess, the headline talk of the day from Liverpool's Ian Graham, who's the director of research. Um, and he was mainly talking about how to have an impact with analytics at a club. Um, and uh, kind of as per Ian's style, as per his personality, it was a very punchy talk. Um, there were some shots fired at some prominent analysts um, in some of the things he was saying, which was quite funny, but also rang, rang very true. Um, and he was just generally giving some very good advice on like how to how to use analytics and be be successful. And the main one really was if you want to be successful with you know with this stuff with these numbers, the biggest impact you can have by a factor of ten is player recruitment and player retention. Um, and that's where he's had a lot of the buy-in. Um, that's where he's had a lot of impact on picking up certain players, renewing certain players. And we just got a, a bit of a peek behind the curtain of some of the metrics they use, like goal difference above average um, and kind of the way that they think about how to actually get a short list of players. Like, you know, how do you look at a radar chart and decide we should have this player on our on our shortlist or not. After Ian, we had uh, Stats Bomb's Will Morgan, who did a talk which was uh, on the kind of paper tracks. There was two tracks. There was kind of the, the guest speakers in one room and then the um, kind of presentation of research in, in the other one. And, and Will's was a, a research paper which was around looking at um, any given possession and how likely it is to end within five seconds, be longer than five seconds, or end in a shot. And from that, there's a load of different ways that you can, like, take this data and take this model and look at team styles and look at situations where a team 
had a short possession that should have been a lot longer and vice versa. And I think there's a lot of nice things which you can look at how uh, you know, build-up breaks down or how a team reacts in transition and there's just a uh, really good approach to that so very technical um, and the sort of work that you would only see at a conference like this um, but a good indicator really on where analytics work is going to be going uh, with, with models like that and then the last one for me was the director of football panel so you had Victor Orta of Leeds James Crine who's the kind of director and co- co-owner of, of Barnsley and Will Kuntz who is the assistant general manager for LAFC and it was mainly, a bit, I guess it was quite a rounded panel. They spoke about GBE at the start and the impact of that on, on academies. That's GBE being the newer Brexit-related regulations in terms of work permits, etc. So a big impact on recruiting of players, particularly from Europe. Yeah, precisely that. I mean, for, for the Premier League and for, for Championship, I guess, any English league, the player pool has just shrunk quite significantly. And that has an impact on both players and, and managers as well, meaning that you know you have fewer to choose from and that makes things a lot harder because everyone's going for the same players. So they were quite punching their thoughts there and saying, you know, it's 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 obviously far from ideal. Uh, and some of, the, some of the rules are quite restrictive. And there was a fairly big change this summer where I think any... Uh, most teams thought that any player kind of I think 21 and under would be largely off the table and then it turns out that you could actually take you know if you if you said to the government we have this 21 year old we want to sign you kind of have a an appeal panel most of them slash all of them would have got through and it was a lot more lax so that was something that was kept fairly quiet I think and, and it massively impacts you know which targets you focus on who you look to buy and, and ultimately who people try and get in the door during the transfer window um, so there was that there was a lot of talk about process which obviously was was really good for me uh, and you know how these how these guys review who they sign how they review their windows both good and bad and then yeah a bit of stuff around like I guess where analytics is going a little bit and Victor Walter spoke about some of the work that he did way back when at Seville around you know scouting or creating shortlists using fantasy points and using the player ratings from Marker and L'Equipe um, to kind of create an average and find guys that are you know, rated consistently well by journalists and things like that. So it was uh, nice to see kind of how far we've come, but also how it's being used at the top level. So overall, uh, a very well-rounded conference, a lot of, uh, you know, interesting talks, both technical and non-technical, and uh, and always the, the networking is the best, and you get to catch up with, you know, club analysts who are, who are dishing the dirt out, which is always a bit of fun. Tom, the headline I saw from this conference was, was Ian, Ian Graham at Liverpool saying something along the lines of, if you're um, in data and you're not working in recruitment, you're wasting your time, I think he said. Like you say, you just said he's always quite punchy with what he says, but I was surprised at that. Why, if you're in data, why would your time not potentially be well spent scouting the opposition through data or analysing your own team through data? I think that quote was both given in context and also taken out of context by quite a lot, just because I think that he meant purely from an opportunity cost point of view. If you kind of split your time evenly across everything, you won't have an impact. If you put all your time into opposition analysis with data and be really, really deep and try and work these things out, you can maybe get you know five points a season extra, but you have to continually be innovative. You might get found out if you're you know using tactics and you have to innovate new ones. The game is chaotic, right? You can have a red card in the first minute and all your work goes at the window. So things like that, I think, are the reason that you have a lot more control on things in recruitment. And ultimately, if you have a better player pool for your manager to work with, that's the best thing you can do to help them win on Saturday. It's not that you know you 
devise a specific corner setup that you can get a slight more chance of, of scoring, if you have better players, you're more likely to win games. Sounds like quite an interesting day, that. My, my only follow-up question is, was there a bar and or any finger food? Uh, yes, there was, there was both. We went to Frankie's at Stamford Bridge and there was a good selection of burgers, uh, some really good coleslaw, actually, and some pizzas. So, um, yeah, it was uh, a good, good spread, I would say. Lovely stuff. Uh, Michael, you have been busy, despite the uh, top tier of, of club football having broken for the international break. Uh, you whipped out the old squad numbers content machine, uh, which you often do around this time. It's, it's good timing for it. You didn't let us down there on the athletics site. But this morning, I want to talk about uh, the piece that's gone out, a, a very different piece to the squad numbers one, the latest, in fact, in the series called My Game In My Words. Yeah, it was with Glenn Hoddle, which was, I must say, a real pleasure to do. Obviously, as a player, he was before my time, but I remember him being England manager, etc. And, and I've always heard stories about how he was, you know, the most talented player of his generation in English football and probably overlooked too much by the national team. And um, yeah, it was just great fun. We did the usual thing of, I showed him, I think, 10 videos, nine of which were great goals. And one was a, a starring performance against uh, Johan Cruyff's Feyenoord back in the early 80s and and Hodder was great you know I, I really like him as a commentator I think he's very interesting on the technical and, and the tactical side of things and uh, yeah it was one of those things where he's got a documentary coming up on on BT about his career and as a player as, as a manager and also you know a couple of years ago he had um, a very serious heart attack when he was on duty for BT and a little bit about that as well but it's one of those things where he'd done I think he'd done eight interviews in the day and I was the eighth one and uh, wow. you really need to do something different, I think, to get people talking. So I think he really embraced uh, the format. And it, it's, it's quite nice. I, I did the same thing with um, with Gary Lineker. must have been October, November. And uh, it's funny because there's always a couple of goals you show them that they can't quite remember or they haven't seen for years. And uh, I don't know. I just I always think if I was Glenn Hoddle or Gary Lineker, I'd be like once a week looking at my best goals on YouTube. (laughs) Clearly, that's not what you do when you're an ex-professional. Absolutely not. It's a brilliant piece. You can read it on site. Tom has given a a written breakdown as well of the StatsBomb conference, as well as lots of other work over the international break. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is where you should go to get a 33% discount on an annual subscription. I'm Adam Hurry, and to mark the 100th episode of my Football Clichés podcast, Jamie Carragher popped in to discuss his footballing fascinations and irritations on the latest edition of Mesut Harland Dicks. It's like Desert Island Discs, but for football. I played for England as a striker. Really? At, uh, yeah, don't look so shocked. I am shocked. <laughs> I watched you at the 1997 Amsterdam Sony 6s. I can't believe this. <laughs> Whether this is a feather in my cap or not, I was keeping Emil Heskey out of England on the 16th team. He was on the <laughs> That bench. is a feather in your cap. <laughs> and all the other teams were doing proper warm-ups and we were just bladdering balls at the wall and having <laughs> shots and just like just causing mayhem. And we've just gone out with no sort of like formation, anything. It's just like, just go out and put like whatever. And, you know, it was just an absolute <laughs> disaster, but funny in a way. How is El Hadstuf these days, Jamie? How is he doing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he rates me really highly. <laughs> <laughs> to listen to Jamie in full flow, check out Football Clichés wherever you get your pods. And of course, ad-free on The Athletic.
Let's dive into part one of this week's pod. Let's improve the laws of the game, or rather let's see if Michael has some good ideas in improving the laws of the game. This might not seem like the sexiest topic, but Michael, it does do numbers, doesn't it? Your piece that dropped on Monday morning, which essentially discussed Mbappe's winning goal from the UEFA Nations League final, 243 comments. Not the most you've ever received, but a good reflection on a job well done. Yeah, I think it very much is a sexy topic. I mean, all the all the sexy football that's followed since 1992 is as a consequence of the back pass change, I would argue. But yeah, it was on the back of that Mbappe Nations League final winner, which I, I mean, I, I haven't talked to you two about, but I, I just think the goal feels wrong. I think he's he's just obviously in an offside position. He is not using the specific phrase in the laws of the game, but he is interfering with play. He is gaining an advantage. And ultimately, a, a through ball that was intended for a player in an offside position reaches the player in an offside position, albeit with a small touch from a defender. Um, and France get their winning goal from it. And it's not the first time this has happened. Um, there have been previous incidents. And actually, there were some very useful um, comments on that article pointing to, in particular, a winner for Galatasaray. It must have been... Three seasons ago, actually, a league deciding winner for Galatasaray was a very similar instance to that, albeit a free kick. And it just seems to me, I mean, a genuine flaw in the laws of the game. So, um, yeah, rather than doing analysis on a game that was settled by this uh, peculiar moment, I decided just to focus on that moment. Essentially, I think the key point that's very difficult to argue with, which which you made and which I've been discussing recently as well, we, we had a similar incident uh, in League One a few weeks ago, uh, which I just had to discuss on the television. And I almost, you know, I was so adamant that the goal should have been disallowed, even with the laws of the game, that I, you know, I was quite grateful for someone who said, no, no, this is, this is an issue. Here's what the law says. And I had a real bee in my bonnet, as you did uh, on Sunday night. I mean, the, the major problem here for me is you're punishing a defender for making a very honest defensive play. And that's probably the the easiest way to sum it up as something that doesn't feel right, that doesn't sit right. You know, if if Garcia had stood still and left the ball for Mbappe, one of the best attackers in the world, to run onto and finish, despite the fact that Mbappe is behind him in a position that he can't see and he can't be sure of the offside line, then Mbappe would have been given offside because he was offside and the pass was clearly intended for him. That goal would have been ruled out. But because Garcia in that split second can't possibly know all of that information and react in the right way, makes a very honest play for the ball and happens to get a touch on it, it it resets, it cancels out Mbappe being offside. That surely is unfair uh, and, and creates a situation where defenders... They're kind of damned if they do and they're certainly damned if they don't because how stupid would you look if you let play go trying to win an offside and they weren't offside? Yeah, exactly. And and Mbappe is making a run on the blind side of Garcia so it's not like he can even judge the situation. It's impossible. I mean, I do understand the nature of the law. The, the, the law is basically there so that if Garcia genuinely intercepts the ball and then passes it back to his goalkeeper and passes it to Mbappe, that's kind of a new phase of play and therefore you you know let play go on that's his fault but when it's a attempted interception or an attempted block I just don't understand how that can be construed as as resetting play and there was in the article a couple more examples there's one I mean it didn't lead to a goal so it didn't lead to any controversy but there was one uh, where Jamie Vardy got in behind um, in a 
Leicester's defeat at Liverpool last season. And it comes off Curtis Jones in the wall. And and Jones basically jumps to try and block the ball, nods it on, but flicks it to Vardy, who is an offside position. And, I mean, we don't know what would have happened. They didn't go back and look at it with VAR. But my sense is probably that that would have been, it would have been considered that Vardy was onside when, you know, the entire point of being in the wall is to block the ball. You know, you're trying to block it. You're not, you're not really playing at the ball. So there's so many, I mean, that is a grey area. And I just, how you would word the, the new law, uh, we could debate, but I think it has to be something along the lines of the player should be in control of the ball. The, the player should have the ball in his possession and then give it away rather than just sticking out a leg and getting half a touch on. So it, it's a shame because that was such a good Nations League final. I don't usually like it when post-match analysis is dominated by a refereeing controversy, but in a way, how can it not? It, it was it was the, the main incident of the game and it was just something that I, I think the vast majority of people just think is basically not right. Spot on. Well, let's move on to, to the next one. Uh, we're, we're looking at throw-ins here. Uh, you've, you've actually said before, I think pretty sure on this podcast, that you'd like to at the very least see a trial of players being able to take throw-ins underarm or pretty much any which way they would like rather than the fairly restrictive way that we've got ourselves into now which often gets flouted obviously by by clear foul throws uh, but there is another throw-in related law change that you'd like to see and you'd like to present it to us now yeah I think first and foremost I'd like to say a couple of things when it comes to laws of the game often people say well you can't you can't change the laws just because you want football to be a little bit different or you want to reward technical play but that really is how the laws of the game have evolved over time I mean that was the reason for the back pass change or the the changes you know to the interpretation of offside or even the, the fact you can now play the ball to a teammate within a box from the goal kick is because we want to reward technical football and I don't think we should be shy in in doing that and the second thing is that I think when it comes to the laws of the game people always think it's just about the professional level but one percent or or less of all football matches are played at professional level. This applies to every level, applies to grassroots too. So one thing that I really dislike is is basically excessive boxing in, throw-ins. And, you know, we have seen some examples, particularly Marseille a few years ago, where they would literally kick for touch from kickoff. They'd kick, they'd boot the ball like a rugby union game and make it go off the pitch five yards from the corner flag. And then everyone pushes forward and swarms a team into the corner. And for me, it's, it, yeah, it goes back to what I said, it's just not the kind of football that I want. I don't think you should be rewarded, essentially, for booting the ball off the pitch. And I think it's actually quite hard to get the ball out of those situations, particularly if you're not a, a top-level team. Because one, you are boxed into that corner. And second, you obviously have one fewer player because you've got one player to take the throw. So it's actually quite easy to box in and win the ball there. And all I would like to see is a change where if you have a throw-in in that corner of the pitch, you can bring the throw-in forward to the edge of your own penalty box, 18 yards away from your byline. And that just makes it easier. It means that you can go backwards. It means the opposition have to cover a large amount of space. It means you can throw the ball backwards to a centre-back or whatever if you need to. It also means if you do just chuck the ball along the touchline and lose it, it's 18 yards further than if you have to take it next to the corner flag. It's just a small thing that going back a long time now but when I was um, when I was playing kind of under 14 football there was just too much emphasis on I mean it would almost be one of the major areas where goals would come from just just those silly little situations where you do box teams in and, and win the ball so I don't think it would be a major tweak but I think it would help things. Any issues with that Tom? I don't think so I guess my issue is more that 
are we kind of limiting the tactics that certain teams can use and and kind of making the game a bit more vanilla in these situations? I mean, the team that comes to mind perhaps is, is Barnsley or West Brom under Valerian Ismail, where I feel that they use this kind of boxing into their advantage. Why would we take that away from them for, for doing a do something different just because their opposition can't get out of these situations very well that would be my my only issue and I guess it's for certain teams like that this is an edge for them to try and profit from these situations um, and just because teams aren't regular at it should they should they suffer for that well I don't like them <laughs> I don't like teams like that honestly no I mean I, I, I do I do take your point I mean it is um, it, it is a valid approach at the moment and you know I watch a lot of football at seventh tier level and I think team I support concerning I think our fans get more excited when we can box in the opposition than when we actually have a corner because it might be more chance of a decent chance coming from it <laughs> which does feel a little bit weird to me I just think yeah I, I just think there's a little bit too much reward for essentially kicking the ball over the touchline whether that's a miscontrol or whether it's a straight pass or whether it's a deliberate thing if you can't keep the ball on the pitch I don't think you should end up in a profitable situation unless the opposition do something absolutely crazy. Okay, we've had one that I'd consider fairly serious and one that I would consider consider sort of outside the box thinking. Uh, we'll go back to serious, Michael, because you wanted to talk about this the other day. We didn't have time on the last pod, but you have had a, a, a legitimate bee in your bonnet about a, a particular piece of set-piece chicanery that we often see from corners, uh, most notably recently at Courtney Hawes' goal against Manchester United. I can't stand teams blocking off the keeper from corners. I cannot stand it. I think it's completely against the spirit of the game. I gather it was pretty much invented by Jack Charlton back in the late 60s for Leeds, who just used to mark the keeper. And I just, again, I'm I just not entirely sure this is the kind of thing I, I want to see rewarded. You, you wouldn't get away with it any other time, of course, because the player would usually be in an offside position. But when the ball is obviously at the corner flag, you can't be offside. So you do have players who are literally just blocking off the goalkeepers. I think often in a more more blatant way than they do to outfielders. And, and a, a slightly secondary issue is you had that goal that Aston Villa scored at Manchester United late on through Courtney Hawes, where Ollie Watkins was a judge not to be interfering with David De Gea. And I just, I, I does my head in because he, he's, he's only in that position to interfere with David De Gea. And so how, even if he's not in the line of sight of David De Gea, if he's standing between the wits of the goal, in front of the goalkeeper, albeit not between the goalkeeper and the player who was having the headed shot, he's clearly interfering with play. I don't understand how you can interpret it any other way. So I would happily say that for uh, corner kicks, attackers are not allowed to be standing in the six-yard box when the corner's taken. Um, and of course, as soon as the corner is taken, you can do what you want. If you want to challenge the goalkeeper in the air, of course, you can have a run up, you can jump at him, whatever. But this process of actually blocking off the goalkeeper, I just don't think football is about blocking. There are sports where blocking is a fundamental part of it, American football, whatever. But blocking the goalkeeper and getting away with it because of these interpretations of offside and interfering with play, I just think is, um, is slightly odd. And I think it's more of a factor now because fewer teams defend with men on the post. But I was about to say that, and there was an excellent piece on, on site by Nancy Frostick about this trend uh, last week, I think it was, at the start of last week, why players are no longer on the posts when defending corners. I've been in TV studios this season where multiple people uh, have been screaming at the television, why don't you have a man on the post like we always used to? 
Uh, Tom, this is something that has moved out of the game. And I, I think a lot of it does come back to st- stronger analysis, essentially, of set-piece situations and how better to defend corners. Yeah, completely. And it does have me thinking, just, just talking about kind of blocking off. It's funny how all the kind of tactical innovation or the innovations kind of at the margins, you know, this Villa goal where Watkins is, is blocking De Gea and Hall scores, that is obviously one that's that's drawn up and they brought in, I think, Austin McPhee who's come in to be a set-piece coach. It's funny how all the innovation really in these situations is, it's kind of the dark arts, right? It's kind of in the kind of questionable of how allowable it is. And it's probably on the fringes of, of whether it's, you know, impacting the the laws of the game or if it is like, you know, a foul and something that you can't do. So I always find that, find it quite interesting that I think we've seen it in other sports as well, particularly basketball. I think there was some kind of more fringe rule changes over the years because teams are looking to leverage these situations, which are kind of, questionable in nature uh, and kind of impacting the, the flow of the game but on Nancy's point it's interesting because you don't really get it a lot in data you know we don't for most data sets you don't see whether it's there's a man on the post or not and it's only since we've had tracking data come into the game and more teams are able to track setups at corners that you can get numbers and, and understand okay what is the impact of scoring or or you know conceding if you have men on the post or not and I guess that's just one that over time, teams have got more data. Teams can look at which, you know, what's best to do. And now we're starting to see that, okay, actually, more men in the box and more men elsewhere is far better than having them mm. on the post. It's one of those debates about having players on the post that makes me laugh sometimes because those who want players on the posts would only raise this when the ball is flicked in and scored at the near post. And it's easy to say, was there a player there, they would have headed the ball away or cleared the ball off the line. You would never have someone of the opposing view point out every time having two extra defenders to head the ball away from the initial delivery, not even allowing the opposition to make first contact. I mean, that would be tedious if that was pointed out as often as when there's no one on the post and and it's gone in. Coming back to the law, Michael, I mean, this... We don't talk about refereeing too often, and that's because quite often it's quite tedious. But particularly for me, the discussion around whether a player is interfering with the line of sight of the goalkeeper has to be up there with one of the the sort of, you know, in general football discourse, one of the most tedious discussions because there's not a huge amount of clarity. I don't think the average football fan really knows what is and what isn't. So generally the opinion comes from what team they support and whether they've been hard done by or not. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is I think... With VAR, you can judge line of sight much more easily. But in the vast majority of games, even at professional level, that don't have VAR, the linesman is never, ever going to be in a position to see line of sight. The referee might be in a line of sight, I don't know, 20% of the time. But it's, I mean, it's very, very difficult for the officials to be able to judge that. So I think it's just, yeah, I, I, I sooner we're a little bit strict on it than have you know, potential situations where I think if you're a goalkeeper and I I have very little experience of goalkeeping, but I think if you're a goalkeeper, you're constantly reacting to everyone that's in front of you and the positioning of everyone in front of you, obviously the attackers in general. And I just think that it's slightly difficult to take when you, when you do see situations where players deliberately blocking off the goalkeeper. I mean, there was a, the De Bruyne equalised against Liverpool. I think it was Sterling ended up almost on top of Alisson for that in open play. So that's that can be a grey area. But when Watkins is standing there literally to block off the goalkeeper, I don't think two seconds later you can say, well, I'm not interfering with play in this position. I think it's a, a nonsense, really. 
Okay, any more for us, Michael? This is probably your last chance to talk about the laws of the game for a few months at least, but it's great to see some passion. I can't deny that. Okay, this is this one is slightly random, but I, I honestly think it makes sense. If a team scores a goal, but they are still losing the game despite scoring that goal, they get to take centre, not the opposition. And my argument here is, if a team's 2-0 down and they score, they get one goal back in the 91st minute and there's two minutes of stoppage time. Mm-hmm. The opposition time wastes so much. You have this silly situation where the team have just scored, get the ball out of the goal. They run back to their own half as quickly as possible. They put the ball in the centre spot. But the opposition would just stand around waiting for 30 seconds. As is their right. Well, to a certain extent. But if it was, if it was the team who just scored who can get the ball, kick it to the halfway line, run back quickly and take kickoff, Game on. The team who've, who've just conceded the goal have to switch on. There's more chance of a, of a you know, a flurry of attack and exciting comeback. The opposition can't do the thing where they just boot the ball downfield, lose it and get back into a defensive shape. It just adds a little bit more intensity, a little bit more drama, and there's more chance of uh, an exciting comeback. I think you've probably lost me with this one, Michael. I do appreciate that you are coming at this from an angle of increasing entertainment. Uh, excitement, if you will, for the fans. But I don't think, I, I, I suppose I would say that they're, they're no more deserving of having kickoff just because they're losing. If anything, the team that's that's got more goals, you know, I think they deserve to have the kickoff to, to make sure they can see out the win. But I do see where, see where you're coming from. I do love, I do like the idea that perhaps this weekend in the Premier League, there's potential we could have a situation where a team pulls back a consolation goal, makes it 2-1 in the 89th minute. And then the opposition team, who will have kickoff because your law will not have been implemented in just a few days, will then boot the ball into touch right by the goal line and then box them in. Yeah. And that could be the end. That genuinely could be the end of you. That would be an issue. I mean, I, I do understand your objection and I don't think it would make a massive difference. But I think once a season, there'd be a great comeback because of it. And I can't see, I can't see a downside. Well, wasn't that there's an amazing, amazing goal scored? I think it was by RB Leipzig, but a few seasons ago, perhaps not when they were at, at the level they're at now, where they they score the most amazing goal ever scored from kickoff, essentially. Where they, they sort of line up rugby style with eight players on one side of the pitch, is rolled back, chipped forward. I think two consecutive flick ons are one, and then a ball is, is laid across and tapped in at the far post. So the whole thing takes about seven seconds, and it is. Genuinely quite exhilarating. So, you know, that would be quite fun. Th- that was good. I think they did that a couple of times, didn't they? They used to be mm. quite exciting, Leipzig. I haven't been so enthused by them in recent seasons. I think it gets harder and harder the, the higher up you, you get. It's difficult to be innovative, isn't it, at the very, very top level. Let's move on because we must. Um, we've had the surf, now time for the turf. Newcastle United are in the news, aren't they? They have... Uh, new owners and there are a lot of different things to unpack about the new ownership some of it very serious and some of it topics that are difficult for us to do justice to in a short amount of time I am very grateful to the exceptional coverage on the athletic site which has covered I think all angles of the Newcastle United takeover story and particularly I would strongly recommend pieces by Oliver Kay by Matt Slater 
Jack Pitbrook, an absolutely excellent piece from James Montague from last week, which gives incredible background into all of this. And also George Culkin, who covers Newcastle United, has written an excellent mailbag, I think went up this morning, that covers everything that you could possibly want to ask really uh, about what's happening at Newcastle, particularly how the club might move forward, because that's what we're going to focus on, the immediate footballing future of Newcastle United as they look to, uh, well, punch their way upwards, move up the food chain, I suppose, in in Premier League terms. Uh, Particularly, Tom, we want to talk about squad building uh, with Michael, perhaps how their playing style could change to fit this new era. Uh, but, But we're going to start with the squad. There's a lot of talk about all these players that they might be able to sign because they have unlimited money. Uh, I think the reality is that that is unlikely in the short term, at least. But if you were appraising the squad, let's say you were hired as a consultant for the new owners of Newcastle United, what would be your your sort of top line in appraising the squad at the moment? I mean, it's a very good question, a very important one. Um, I think that realistically, the headline analysis is that they're extremely light up top. um, And I think they're pretty light in quality across the pitch so this isn't going to be a you know uh, I don't think there are too many players in there that you can think that will be still be in the squad in two or three years time that if they want to be challenging for the title and Champions League and, and things like that I think they're going to have to look at how do we do this across multiple windows and using the academy to to boost our kind of pipeline of talent because uh, at the moment this is a squad that will change dramatically if they're to get to that point. Let's go from from back to front, starting with the goalkeeper. I mean, what what I want to know, because I'm not interested in here's a whole new 11 that they could buy and have by January the 31st. What I'm more interested in is um, in in more specific analysis terms, which areas of the pitch should they focus on? Because, I mean, Colkin wrote this morning he'd expect around 40 or 50 million pounds to be made available in January. Now, you can split that into one marquee signing or a couple of uh, sort of mid-level additions. Let's start with the goalkeeper and the defence. How do you appraise that part of the pitch for Newcastle? I think they're pretty well stacked uh, in goal with uh, Freddie Woodman, who's obviously pretty young but and, and quite raw, but obviously has some talent there. Um, Martin Dubravka is back from injury soon, who has been one of the kind of better shot stoppers in the league um, in the last few seasons. And then they've got, you know, Mark Gillespie and, and, and Kyle Darlow. So they have enough bodies at the back. And I don't think that is a an area really which you're going to get the most value from by, by kind of, you know, investing 20 million in a player back there. So I think they're largely fine there. I think across the bat line is where they need more work and right back they have a couple of options in Mankia who's slightly more attacking and and Emil Kraft who is slightly more defensive minded and then left back I mean Jamal Lewis I think is is out of favour at the moment with Steve Bruce and I think he's probably a bit more of a an attacking option um, and his defensive abilities are perhaps a bit more questionable but Matt Ritchie is someone who um, I think he's He's one of the better crosses in the league, so you can see why he's playing in this position. Probably a bit more trusted, he's a bit more experienced. But again, this you know these are players that you probably want to up the level of over the course of the next few seasons. Um, but I don't think those are the problem positions right now. I think they're probably fine, at least until the end of the season. Although, Michael, you have spoken extensively in the last few weeks about how important the fullback position has become at the very top of the Premier League, if that's where ultimately they are targeting. Yeah, I wonder whether Lewis will actually suit the side that is... Um, more attack-minded and basically better. He got into the championship team of the year when Norwich went up, didn't he? And, and Norwich were a very good team and obviously dominating the league. I'm not sure he's great defensively. I think for a side like Newcastle, who must be close to the, the least average possession in the league, probably isn't that suited. On the other hand, I mean, someone like Emil Kraft, I think, is 
he's the most old school fullback around, really. It's like he's been conditioned to play in a really traditional Scandinavian 4-4-2 and can't, he's not really someone who switches inside at centre-back and he's not someone who overlaps particularly well. So I'm not sure that, um, you know, a free-flowing, entertaining style will suit him. But I feel like Lewis maybe might um, might stick around. Still young, 23, room to develop. I must say, I do quite like him. And I think maybe a, uh, a more positive manager might like him as well. I remember when Kraft came in and I think Chris Woff did a profile on him and all the interviews and all the points were just saying how good he is at tackling. And I just feel that's the most old school fullback accolade you could probably have. Would we say that this is a sort of reverse nominative determinism where actually as a player, Kraft is, is kind of what he's lacking in a sense? Yeah. How about the spine of the team, guys? Centre-back, central midfielders, what needs doing here in the next few windows? So I think at centre-back, Fabian Scher is probably the only ball player that they have. I guess the issue for them is that his contract ends next summer. So either you go hard to replace him early or you sign to a, to an extension. But I think that he's one where the other centre-backs, apart from him, aren't really passing types. And if depending on the manager you get in, that's probably what you're going to want. So I think he, you know, his skill set and, and the player himself are one that is good to kind of focus on right now. And I think everywhere else at, at centre-back, I mean, they're fairly old. You've got Kieran Clark, you've got Jamal Lascelles, Federico Fernandez. So I think that, again, I think that some of those are probably pretty useful in a in a better drilled defensive system and, and are, you know, passable league average defenders on, on their good days, particularly Lascelles. But I do think that Shah and having a, a ball-playing centre-back will be important for, for the new manager. So, yeah, I think that he particularly is one to, to focus on. I guess overriding this whole discussion, Michael, and you touched on it in your answer, is that under Steve Bruce and, to be fair, under Rafa Benitez, since returning to the Premier League, Newcastle United's general style of play has been reactive rather than proactive. Even in very basic terms, looking at possession percentage, they have been without the ball much more than they have been with the ball over the last four or five seasons. So when you talk about a squad and particularly when you're looking to recruit and you're trying to project how players would play in different styles of play, we're almost blinded by the fact that a lot of these guys have been playing in a certain reactive style for four or five years, which I guess kind of works against them, even though it's not really their fault. Yeah, that is true. And to broaden the point a little bit, if it feels like there's fewer and fewer, I mean, almost by the nature of time, I suppose, but there's fewer and fewer old school teams. You know, we think of Newcastle as being one of the sides who are content to defend deep and play reactively. I mean, Palace were like that. They're not like that anymore now. Hodgson's gone. Looks like Bruce will go at some point. There's not that many of those old school managers around with, I suppose, the notable exception of Sean Dyche. But I mean, there's no Allardyce. There's no Pulis. Mark Hughes, to a certain extent, was like that. He's not there. Brighton, another one, obviously, who've who've changed their style completely. But it's another side who's just going to be modernised. And like you say, some players can adjust to that and some players very much not suited. How are their central midfield options in your eyes, Michael? Um, I'm not a big fan of Isaac Hayden. Uh, I don't think he's particularly good on the ball. I think he's can make silly defensive mistakes. And yeah, a couple of times over the years has, has made terrible record tackles as well. And Shelby, I mean, Shelby's a great passer. He can do some fantastic things, but I, I've just never thought he's, he's mobile enough, really. He reminds me a little bit of um, Tom Huddleston, who, you know, was a player who sat in and could play great diagonal passes, but I just I don't think has the mobility either defensively or to c- contribute as much as he should going forward. So yeah, I can see those two players uh, falling out of favour fairly quickly. And in the final third of the pitch, this is probably the for me the most interesting area, Tom, because this is where 
you know, I talk about fantasy football and everyone's getting very excited about who this club might be able to buy if they had uh, unlimited funds. And most of it is obviously complete nonsense. But, you know, Newcastle could save themselves quite a lot of money if they have players in the final third who can step up and start performing at a higher level in perhaps a, a team with a more attack-minded style because those players tend to cost the most amount of money. So who have they got and how good could they be? So they've got Miguel Almiron who in his final season at Atlanta before he moved to, to Newcastle had 12 goals and 11 assists so that kind of shows you that albeit in a, in a less quality league and with a lot more possession of the ball he was able to produce some sort of output and he's had to turn into a kind of more hard-working off-the-ball player and his numbers are, are really really poor because of that and I think that like you're saying about the center mids maybe he's someone who could benefit from being in a slightly more up-tempo possession system his numbers this year he's got 0.6 xg 0.3 xa in total in six games which is about what Diogo Jota averages per 90 so that shows you just how ineffective he's been apart from that you've got Josh Murphy who I think is kind of fine maybe as a winger in the last half an hour of a game I think he's a decent crosser but he has some very suspect kind of shooting positions which he looks to to let loose from and I don't think he is good enough defensively to be a wing back in a, in a kind of 3-5-2 system given the players that are around him and then you've got Ryan Fraser who I think has had plenty of fitness issues since joining and has nowhere near kind of replicated his, his form from Bournemouth um, despite linking up with Callum Wilson and then Alan Maximan is obviously the pick of the bunch both in terms of he can play out wide he's played more through the middle recently he just creates a lot of space for teammates and he's probably by far and away the best player in the squad so he's the one really that in the short term you're probably going to have to look to build around Can you envisage any of these guys Michael uh, Sam Maximan the obvious one but anyone else contributing to a team you know starting to move into the top half of the Prem? I can see Almiron playing a role just because I think he's so hardworking and I think maybe teams have figured out now that if you're going to have an overhaul like this and let's say you're playing 4-2-3-1, I'm not sure having four superstars in the final third always works. I think sometimes you do want someone for the discipline and the balance and and I do like Almiron. And the press. Yeah, and I do like Almiron in terms of his hard work. You know, I can't disagree with what Tom says about his... Um, his stats, I mean, his stats for Atlanta United and indeed his performances were just fantastic and he's really struggled for goals here. Obviously, partly due to roles, Tom says. There was a period where he kept on getting in the positions but just couldn't couldn't apply the finish. So I do think he, he probably has a role. And Sam Maximan, of course, is very exciting and a, a real crowd pleaser. But yeah, I think there's going to be some, some upgrades in certain positions. So we're not 100% sure how much movement there will be in January. Uh, most of the quotes from those going into the club are more focused, Tom, on uh, root and branch reviews and taking their time to overhaul the club slowly and not not going for a quick fix approach like perhaps Chelsea in the summer 2003, Manchester City when they came into all of this kind of money as well. We kind of wait and see what happens on that front. But in terms of immediate areas to improve, it, it does feel like it's the spine of the team that you'd be flagging up for, for maybe a couple of January additions to really strengthen and get themselves away from the relegation zone. Yeah, I think the you know, the spine, the centre back, centre mid and and centre forward, I mean we didn't really appraise that position set, but I think um Callum Wilson is is a good player but has his fitness issues and the drop down to Joe Linton and, and Dwight Gale is, is pretty big. So I think that you know giving him some support is important. But yeah, I think that it's interesting we've spoken about in you know various podcasts in the past around how do you avoid relegation, how do you kind of fend off that second season syndrome, but we've never really done a pod on, you know, if you're coming into a transfer window and you're trying to you know, get up to mid-table with a big boost of investment. How do you do it? But I guess 
theoretically, the spine of the team is probably involved in in more of the play, and it's better to have better quality players there. Or at least, you know, you, you try and play a style of play which forces teams into the middle instead of out wide where you're you're a bit more suspect defensively, especially in, in, in Newcastle's case. So, yeah, I think you can probably get more value for money and there's probably better options to get a good ball-playing centre-back, a decent box-to-box midfielder and another kind of classic number nine versus kind of more specialist players in wide positions. So, um, yeah, that's what I think they they should uh, focus their, their spending on to begin with. Now you very specifically haven't mentioned any names here, Tom. Is that because you're holding them back for some written content? Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm doing a piece at the moment with the help of Chris Woff on kind of who are some players that, given the money they want to spend, uh, given the positional needs that they, you know, that we think they could target, these are some guys that, uh, that I think they should go for. So yeah, that should be up on the site uh, Friday or Saturday. And then there's the question of the manager. Now, sort of naturally, I find this an uneasy topic when there is a, an incumbent manager. Uh, Steve Bruce is approaching his thousandth game uh, as a manager in English football, isn't he? And it, it feels from the quotes that I read on in George Culkin's piece that a Bruce sacking and a Bruce replacement isn't necessarily imminent in the next few days or, or even the next week or two. I feel like he might be in quite a strange sort of holding pattern for a while because the assumption is that he will be moved on and that someone else will, will come in. Uh, just quote from Colkin's piece, there have been low-level chats about recruitment of staff and players in recent weeks, but this was more of a ticking over than the serious, intense discussions. Until it actually happened, the takeover felt very distant, even to them. Everybody's been caught on the hop. There are three spokes to Newcastle's ownership. That means there are three sets of opinions, if not more, and three sets of people receiving information or messages from contacts, from agents, from total strangers. Their football advisors have compiled a list of potential managerial targets but those advisors have not yet had their own roles formalized or their contracts signed which should give an indication of where things are so it it feels like Steve Bruce will be the manager for the foreseeable but it also feels inevitable that he won't be the manager to take the club forward in the long term Uh, all these names being banded about Tom as there are for for potential player signings of the managers named so far which do you think make the most sense or, or hold the most sway? Yeah, so, I mean, Mark Carey did a piece um, on the site on Sunday, which I'd implore you to read if you haven't already, kind of looking at a few of these options. But I think the ones considered were, were Steven Gerrard, who obviously has kind of built up Rangers from from where they were at to a title-winning and kind of Scotland-dominating side. So he's a great example of someone who's actually trying to play more progressive possession-based football. So he, he's one uh, one option. Brendan Rodgers was another that's kind of banded around and I think that he's currently the bookie's favourite and you can kind of see that things are getting a, a little bit stagnant at Leicester and you know questionable whether he's in a good good headspace to then actually think of a, a move and a fresh start and I think they've uh, they've particularly struggled signing some average-ish players in the last couple of windows and they've hamstrung him a little bit from the position they were at and maybe this is a, a new opportunity for him and again you can go in with a really big budget and look to build out a project so I think Rodgers is a, a good option for sure obviously the biggest name on the list really who's out of a job at the moment is probably Antonio Conte and I uh, I'd love to see kind of if you were to kind of play with the same players against the same opposition have a Bruce 3-5-2 and a Conte 3-5-2 in the system just really how much better a manager Conte is and how much better he can can kind of work in a 3-5-2 to these guys that is more effective I'd love to see that is it just going to be you know Italian Steve Bruce or is there actually a level of <laughs> coaching quality that's going to improve these players in such a short period of time 
Uh, let me just bring in Michael. Have you ever considered Antonio Conte to be the Italian Steve Bruce? No, I can't think of any likeness there. No, I'm I'm, I'm trying to think of a jokey comparison, but I cannot. I, I guess the question is whether you want to bring in someone very, very long-term, with a very long-term approach. But in terms of the question about how quickly one can change a style of play, Michael, you know, from, from what we've spoken about, a really reactive, deep defending style of play. I mean, how realistic is it for a manager to come in and change that to a much more possession-based, fluent, attacking style of play and an effective one sort of in season? Are there loads of, are there enough examples of managers coming in and being able to change things while the football calendar keeps turning and not having as much time on the training pitch as they might do in, in a pre-season? Yeah, that's a very good question. I hadn't considered that. I can't think of any particularly great examples off the top of my head. Because it feels like if you got someone in who had the right ideas long term, but Newcastle was still in a relegation battle and still mostly had the squad that they have at their disposal, who have mostly played the same style of football for the last three to five seasons, it could be a recipe for disaster, genuinely. Yeah, I think you're right. I felt a little bit like this about um, when Southampton appointed Pochettino, which was, what, 2013 maybe? Because they've been struggling a little bit under Adkins, but had been on an upward curve. And I was quite confident that they would avoid the drop with Adkins in charge. And Pochettino came in and he had a peculiar record where they're actually very good against big sides, but were losing to the teams around them in the relegation zone. And I was a little bit worried. I mean, I've... Is the kind of change I thought would have been suited to the end of the season, but maybe at the time they didn't think that they could wait for him. So yeah, it's, it's, it is difficult. And the teams who have done it successfully, certainly Brighton was a summer change. Crystal Palace, I think broadly is going well, was a summer change. I'd even slightly controversially say Stoke after Pulis, because Hughes did change his style of football. And I think they finished ninth three years in a row, having finished 13th or below Every time under Pulis, it went a little bit wrong after that. But for three seasons, they, they were pretty good. So no, it is, it is a tough job. It is a tough job if you're going to change it mid-season. I do question whether the right approach is to just have Graham Jones as caretaker until the end of the season as someone who I think is, is probably tactically sound enough to get things over the line. Whether he has the kind of man management abilities of Bruce that, you know, is, is questionable considering he's not had a kind of head coaching job to start with and then with that in place to try and build the infrastructure ready for the summer in terms of a sporting director and you know line up a manager to come in and completely rebuild from from scratch in the summer rather than trying to do it mid-season and I think the question of whether Bruce stays is probably out the window at this point because I imagine that his, his head's gone all the talk of this you know the takeover and new managers he probably just wants to to get paid and get out at this point but I just wonder if that's a less disruptive approach to keeping keeping them up with the manager they're familiar with without too much change in season that could go either way. And, and you know, there's still a chance they could get relegated and that obviously is, is far from ideal. So I can't see a manager like Conte. I mean, yeah, of course, he's, he's, he's a fantastic manager, but this is a totally different challenge to what he's ever probably faced before. So I just wonder if the Jones approach to the end of the season is, is a bit more risk averse and could work in their favour longer term. I think the whole thing's fascinating because I think people are considering the realistic possibility of relegation for Newcastle sort of less and less by default because they've been taken over by people that we consider to be very rich and can probably spend a lot of money. But everything I've read about the fact that they probably won't approach the January transfer window by buying a load of superstars or won't be able to 
to, to some extent. And then the questions about how you manage this delicate managerial situation. Uh, I wonder if there's too much confidence that uh, that things will just start going well from this very point. It's it's as I say, I think it's a delicate situation um, in in the foot on the footballing side of things, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, I dare say. I think it's the first time we've really focused on uh, Newcastle on this podcast, being as it is a mostly a football tactics and football analytics podcast. And uh, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn when I suggest that I don't think we've considered there to be a, a full episode of those two uh, discussion points when it comes to Newcastle United over the last few years. But uh, it feels like that could be changing. So I'm no doubt we'll, we'll check in on them in a few months, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and just to pick up on your point there about relegation, I mean, looking at 538s, um, end of season probabilities there's a 43% chance that Newcastle get relegated from this point which is the fourth highest after Norwich Watford and Burnley so they're by no means safe and of course like you say Ali there's there's a potential to spend big and and, and you know build and be very prosperous at, at the end of this but the here and now is the threat of relegation is is very very real let us know what you think listening because I do think this is an interesting topic I do think that a lot of the the, the fantasy football style discussion around what could happen misses some fairly serious points but it, it's also very possible that that I'm missing something here in my uh, perhaps increased concern above above average uh, so let us know either in the comments on the athletic site or by tweeting us uh, you can get in touch with us on twitter of course any future topic suggestions are always welcome we've we've run with a few of those over the last few months uh, but otherwise it's time for us to head off uh, we'll be back with you next week on the athletic football tactics podcast make sure you're subscribed to this feed and make sure you're a subscriber of the athletic so that you can read everything that tom and michael write each week and everything i've mentioned above we've talked about a lot of pieces uh, on this podcast michael on squad numbers mbappe on glenn hoddle tom warville on all sorts of things uh, and of course all of the many many wide-ranging pieces uh, on the newcastle united ownership situation and their recent takeover so head to the athletic.com forward slash tactics you'll get a 33 percent discount on an annual subscription and otherwise join us next week please on the athletic football tactics podcast it's been a pleasure we'll talk again then the athletic <laughs>